Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the second half of our countdown of our top 10 episodes and podcasts of 2022. Last week, we heard from Joe Coleman of Summerdown Farm, Ben Ashton of Good Oaks Home Care, serial entrepreneur Ty Temmel, Darren Mooney of Global Brand Communications, and Chloe Adams of The Art Movement. So without further delay, let's begin the countdown of our top five. We start with Dave Chedry, who went from premiership rugby player to city trader and then co-founder of boutique personal training studio, Dynamic Health in Lilliput. There were so many questions I wanted to ask Dave, such as what was his transition from sportsman to trader like? What was his experience of 24 years in the city? What ignited that personal and professional shift that saw him abandon his career as a trader and move back to his roots on the South Coast? And what is it like running a business with your spouse? Perhaps you should start with those 24 years in the city and, and what that taught you about yourself and who you are and those experiences from a, I suppose, positive and a negative perspective. There's certainly plenty of those. Um, yeah, I, I had, from, from the very start, I had no real connection with the city, which is quite unusual because a lot of people tend to have either parents working there or have went in, been to the right school uh, to the natural evolution is to then go into city type work. Uh, Do you think I'm that's still the same these days? Uh, less and less so. So certainly towards the end, well, certainly the last ten years. Whereas before, you would have probably found your sort of market trader, second-hand car salesman type, Dell boy, as you would picture in the city. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely since probably for the last 15, 20 years, it's become much more maths orientated. Um, I think where the underlying financial instruments are becoming more and more complex in order to be perceived or to actually understand the underlying risks, you have to, in theory, know a lot of the maths behind it. So therefore, it's moved away from your secondhand car salesman to like the, the average graduate now is probably a undergraduate Oxford in maths. They'll do a economics and maths at Harvard, PhD, and yeah. then come into the city. So it's definitely coming much more um, from a cerebral perspective. The reason I went into the city is, as I said, I, I, I wanted to avoid just the long, I didn't want a long, it scared me a big long career yeah. in front of me where, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to work that hard for that long period of time. <laughs> the, the, the idea of a, a job where I could go in and earn a lot of money Worked really intensely. Worked hard work didn't scare me, but hard work over forty or fifty years, I just couldn't get my head round. So I wanted something where I could go in and hopefully work hard and get rewarded quickly for it. But which is great. But twenty-four years in the city is quite unusual in itself as well, isn't it? These days, there's that kind of burnout piece. Maybe this. It is. It's certainly like you know, and it definitely stress towards the end was definitely. I I could feel it on my body. It was it was taking its toll. Um, as you can see, these grey hairs, they... they, they <laughs> At least they, you have hair. They, well, I, I wasn't going to comment, but uh, uh, seven or eight years ago, I didn't have these. But um, yeah, I think uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's an accumulation of stress and pressure. You can take it in your 20s and 30s. Yeah. Then as soon as you get to that point when you have kids, you're not sleeping as well. You're still expected to go out till three in the morning, be at your desk at 630 
it, there's a reason it's a young man's game and yeah. um, I, you know I, for, for me also it also just tied in with when a lot of the fun was leaving the job um, a lot a lot of a, a lot of the job roles were being de-risks you weren't able to take on the same degrees of risk and positions that you used to be able to and just the general fun of the job yeah. like, like a lot of things in the last few years it's been eked out of it with rugby, I've certainly got a general feeling of, it feels like unfinished business, but unfortunately at the age I am now, it's probably going to remain unfinished. I think it's done. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that, that horse has bolted, unfortunately. But no, I loved it, got to you know play with some great players and against some great players, loved every moment of it, learned a lot from it, which I probably, you know, some of that was almost on the negative side that I've taken forward into my career in the city and, and leaving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. I, I, for me, rugby is the best sport in the world. It's um, you know just what what you learn of, from it in terms of life skills, mm. working in a team, all that type of thing. Which is you know when I last left the city, they were particularly going after um, uh, Loughborough University because it's got a real sort of play hard, work hard, sporting background, yeah. um, and particularly sports people in general, just because of that sort of work hard, play yeah. hard e- ethic, which is. You know very much what the and city's all about spirit as well exactly it's that it's that finding a way to win when it's not always obvious yeah. and i think that's that's when you play sport at a high level uh, i was having a conversation with a guy the other day um about this in that i was playing tennis i haven't played tennis for years yeah. and i reasonable tennis I used to be a reasonable tennis player but don't don't play a whole lot but what i'm quite good at in most sports or things like that is finding a way to win and, and, and you see it with the, the very top players you know I was watching yeah. Wimbledon the other day and uh, you see someone like uh, Nadal everything's against him but he's always got that positivity yeah. that he's going to push through and you feel it's like that, he's going to win that it's, it's that and it, it's, it is it's, it's an edge which I think whether it's business sport or anything most people who are reasonably successful yeah they they get that edge. They'll yeah. they'll they'll and a lot of it. A lot of time, it's just plain belligerence. It's but just refusing to lose and just keep going and going that and going. Determination and that sense of belief and yeah. yeah. And like you say, finding finding the way and it is that difference, isn't it? You know, you look. You know, in business, people that you know run anything from a small business um, to very large businesses, and you know, when you look at the, those that succeed against their competitors of a similar size in a similar industry, it'll be those that are prepared just to go that extra two three percent yeah that makes a world of difference yeah it? and and just just keep going sometimes yeah. even when it it's sometimes i think you're probably the, the good guys are the, the probably the last person in the room to still remain positive and still think they can still get through it when everybody else is saying no and again without sport or business it's just been a, being able to keep going relentlessly yeah. until you met sometimes you you shouldn't make it work but you make it work definitely how does it feel running a business with your wife yeah it's a funny old one isn't it i i'm um it's always an interesting dynamic it is it is i think um uh, it, it work really works really well with us. Part, partly because you know it's a relatively small studio. We we can get sort of twelve, ten to twelve people in. Um, but because we we work alongside each other, each other rather than together. So there's a couple of classes where we we run together. But most of it, either she's in the studio doing her thing or I'm doing doing mine. So so it it works. But um, I think particularly. One thing I'll say, work, working with your wife, you've just got to realise that you're really there on a consultancy basis and uh, she's CEO. That's the hint, isn't it? I would imagine that's probably pretty much the same for anybody. Uh, yeah, perfect. Whatever size business. Right. And it sounds like you've got complementary skills which work for your client base. It does, yes. No, it's, it's, it seems to work. And, and I think, um, you know, that's part of our why why we've probably done quite well i think there's there's a few things on why we've done quite well over the last few years which have been tough years is that part of the reason we set it up was um in london a lot of the gyms were going from rather than being the big corporate gyms to much sort of smaller personal um bespoke type fitness um companies uh, and that's the way it was going i could see that was the way it was going so that that's what we wanted we wanted to try and make a what essentially what feels like a private um, membership club, yeah. but without any fees. You're just paying for, paying for your use rather than 
people are getting fed up with just paying their big yeah. direct debit, barely using the gym. Um, and, and, and that was where it was going. And I, I think particularly the fact it's it's husband and wife, um, it gives a bit of personality to the nice, business. Yeah, it must have that personality, that well, it, it, family it, kind of caring kind of that, feel that, That's it. certainly what we've tried to get across. And I, hopefully you'd have, you'd have to ask the members rather than me. But um, I think most people would probably agree that we, we, we have quite a few sort of social functions and that okay. type of thing. Summer drinks, Christmas uh, lunches, that type of stuff. Um, and it has got that, hopefully that family feel. Next up, Richard North, co-founder and CEO of tech toy company Wow Stuff. As well as Wow Stuff, Richard has either founded or co-founded several companies over the years and appeared on an episode of The Secret Millionaire in 2010. I was alerted to Richard by a post of his I saw on LinkedIn, where he spoke about a car accident he'd had in 2001 that almost cost him his life. It was, of course, a moment that had a profound impact on Richard's outlook and I was inspired by his retelling of how he battled through his post-accident injuries with tenacity and stoicism. I was therefore delighted to get him on the show a week or so after that very LinkedIn post to talk about the accident, his entrepreneurial drive, passion for the toy industry, and so much more. You've heard that story where people say their lives flashed in front of them mm. or everything slowed down. Well, it did slow down as the car spun, and it probably only spun for four or five seconds maximum before impacting into a, a lamppost side on. But it did feel like slow motion. And it <laughs> sounds a bit crude, but the word that went through my mind as it happened was the F word. You know, I knew I was in a whole heap of trouble. Something was going to come. Yeah, something, yeah. Wherever it was going to end up, it wasn't going to look good. It wasn't going to be good. And yeah, so it spun, and I hit the lamppost side on. I had a soft top car, and the car just wrapped around that lamppost like a banana. Um, And I remember that the impact was immense, was was. I don't know whether I can remember hearing the bang, but more felt the bang. And the first thing I remember in those early seconds was looking down at my lap. The steering wheel, as I looked down, was 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 almost in my lap, but so was the lamppost. So the lamppost was directly in front of me. My legs were broken clean through. They were still attached to my torso, but they were broken clean through. And, and, and wrapped mm. around the lamppost. And I could see the sole of my foot. doesn't sound very nice. Um, and extreme pain then followed. Mm. Yeah. And then what effect did that, that then have on the business, on your life? Well, as, as I sat there, I was, I was lucky enough that a friend came along uh, within a minute or two and, uh, and, and contacted and said, look, I'll contact your wife ambulance is on its way and so on and what flashed through my mind was okay I've lost my legs and I suppose my positive spirit took over and I've always been somebody who tries to look on the bright side of things if there was one in that at that moment but uh, just to keep me fighting I, I, the positivity was well even if I lose my legs um, I'll, I'll have a wheelchair and I can adapt it to hold a laptop and I can therefore still work. I'll still have my wife. I'll still have my two kids. My wife was actually pregnant with our third and uh, eight months pregnant at the time. So I was thinking of these kind of positive things. And the other the thing that I mentioned in my um, LinkedIn post was at 10 more seconds. So as the pain became so extreme, I also became extremely tired. And the paramedic, paramedic sat by me in the, in, the, in the crumpled bits of the car. They couldn't cut me out. They were trying everything to try and get my, my body out. My legs tra- were trapped in some metal. And they brought an acetylene torch to cut my legs off because they uh, didn't think they were going to be able to get me out alive. And it was a last-ditch effort. But a, a fireman, like out of a movie, a huge fireman, like a bodybuilder type, decided yeah. to have one last go. And, and I'm getting really tired. The paramedics... I heard us say his, his heartbeats dropped to 18 beats a minute. He's going. He's only got a few seconds left. And I thought to myself, 10 more seconds. I'll hold on for 10 more seconds. So 
I actually didn't count down. I didn't count up to 10. I counted down from 10. So I would go in my okay. mind. I'd say, stay awake, stay awake. That was in my mind. And I'd go 10, 9, 8, 7. And every time I got to zero, I'd think 10 more seconds. I can just last 10 more seconds before I fall asleep, which I guess, you know, I believe that meant that that would be it. So I'd count and yeah. count and count. And, you know, one minute, five minutes, 20 minutes later, I'm still there. And then an hour and 20 minutes, they get me out. They put me in the ambulance and they they take me into the hospital where um, where my life, yeah, really did change from that moment. It's interesting in life and in your business journeys, generally serendipity, you know, meeting chance meetings, how they really impact on your life. Yeah, you know, Warren, that that sums a lot of it all up. The, the serendipity, the chance meetings. Maybe you do make your own chances um, that that are that thing we call serendipity. But you have to be out there. You have to have a positive outlook. You have to connect with people. And the more people you connect with, you don't see it necessarily at the time as there being anything more to it than a casual meeting, a drink with somebody, uh, bumping into somebody at a business event. And then maybe a year or two goes by and you find you've got something in common or they call you up and they say, oh, you're the guy in toys. I've met this other guy over here. He's got this interesting project and so on. And and, and these dots start to get linked up. And yeah, uh, I would say that the as I've got older, I've therefore got more and more contacts. And as I've got more and more contacts, I've been able to do more and more deals and achieve more things. And we live for innovation. We live for that moment when a kid gets one of our toys and the first thing they say when they look at it, play with it, you know, interact with it is wow. Because that yeah. takes me back to a time in my childhood that we've all had, haven't we, you know, where yeah, absolutely. you have a toy and, you know, it's Christmas Day. You've wanted maybe that toy. You, sometimes you know what the toy is going to be. You're hoping, you don't know which box maybe it's going to be in with the wrapping and you rip it apart. There it is. And you've just so prayed for it. You've dreamt about it and you rip that packaging off and it's there and you're just, wow. And that memory and then playing with it and role playing with it can live with you and and, and, and often does. If it's that memorable a product, if it was that, that wanted at that time, it sticks with you forever, well into mm. adulthood. And fun becomes a fundamental memory, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, one of your early fun and fun and everything about that memory is fun. 16 years in the industry, what keeps you hungry, passionate about wow stuff as a business and the industry? First reaction has got to be finding the next big thing. You know, the next big thing in toys. Okay. And, and and actually, I think we've, we've got a project that we're working on at the moment, and it's with technology. And it could be, we believe, it, not only will it be the next big thing in toys and collectibles, but we think it will be a, 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 it's a horrible phrase sometimes because it's so overused, but a game changer in commerce. Um, so we have a business that we call, or the start of a business we call the Immersiverse. And um, so it's in the metaverse. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a project we've been working on actually for 10 years. It's our, our longest um uh, the project that we've worked on off and on the longest of any other toy creation in fact probably all of the toy creations we've had combined and we nearly did do a deal with um, uh, a company called Hasbro one of the major toy companies okay. yeah. um, uh, with the CEO um, president there And but God bless his soul he, he passed away a couple of years ago uh, or a year ago I should say um, but it nearly it nearly came to life then but we've now uh, all the rights are with us and we will be bringing that out. So, yeah, it's living for the next big thing. Not living, it's the excitement, the drive, the energy comes from thinking, from believing that we will create that next big mega toy. So we enter our top three and coming in at number three is Chris Croft, who is one of the UK's leading business trainers. Chris has been on the podcast before and he actually took our number one spot in 2020. 
As well as being a regular contributor to the Evolve blog, Chris is a highly engaging individual with seemingly endless enthusiasm and opinions on just about any subject. I wanted to get Chris back on the show following an article he wrote entitled Why Are So Many Bosses Bad? which looked at several reasons why so many people don't like their bosses and addressed the serious issue of people getting promoted in positions of leadership with little or no training. As ever, our conversation between Chris and I was really candid. Why, in your opinion, are there so many bad bosses out there? Yeah, I think it is difficult. It's not, it's not intuitively obvious how to be a boss. And most bosses don't have training in it. I think that's a key factor. Yeah, I mean, we know that the average British manager gets half a day a year of training, which is not very much. And loads of people get none at all. And most people just copy their bosses, which is not always a good idea. Yeah. I also think perhaps that the wrong type of people end up being bosses. Yeah, sometimes those that yeah. shout the loudest, isn't it? And the biggest yeah. personality. Yes, or the most horrible, aggressive, nasty person or tricky person who yeah. plays the politics ends up getting to the top. And, you know, maybe nice people don't often get to be the boss. So there might be a, a selective process going on. But for whatever reason, my personal life survey has been that there are not many um, good ones out there. And, and I think that was a formative influence on me. And I think I've spent years now trying to sort of redress the balance and push back against bad bosses and trying to make at least some bosses become better ones. Yeah. And I, I, that's become a sort of almost a little crusade of mine without me realising. It was only when you asked me to do this I started thinking about it. I think it's quite easy to learn to be a good boss, actually. I don't Ooh, think being a good okay. boss is that difficult. And I think most people just don't even stop and think about it. They just think, my job is to turn up and solve problems, or my job is to turn up and make people work harder. And yeah. the way you do that is by shouting at people. <laughs> uh, that's what they think. Yeah. And, and they just sort of slip into that world of doing that without ever realising there's another way. Yeah. You know, and so I absolutely I think there are simple things that bosses can learn and do. I mean, a very quick example before we get into proper detail is thanking people. Mm. Like some bosses never thank people, and I've done jobs where I was you know, for two or three years I was never thanked. Now I I could have been utterly useless, of course. <laughs> there may I, be a reason. I can't for that believe person. I was that bad, and and even if I was, they should have found something half decent and. Praise yeah. that. If you look at dog training, you, you, you pick on the good thing the dog does yeah. and you praise them and you increase you the amount of that behavior, yeah. don't you? And, yes. and people are just the same. People are absolutely the same in that respect. And so, you know, why did a boss never thank me? And they, they say things like, well, I'm paying you. What more do you expect? Or, yeah. or you know, well, at least I haven't shouted at you, but so you can't be that bad. Thanking people basic. is just being human, yeah. isn't it? I know, and I've, I've explained this to people on courses, and you could see them going, oh, yeah, oh, he's right. And so, you know, that's one simple thing that bosses can do that works, and it's free, and yet they often don't. Do you think yeah. there's a difference between bad bosses in very large organisations or public sector organisations compared to... You know, the typical lis listener of this kind of podcast is that business owner entrepreneur. Yes. Do you think there's different traits? Hugely. Okay. I think they could, there are problems in both. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, I mean, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say on this podcast. You can always <laughs> edit it. But my belief is that the bigger the company, the worse it is. Okay. Generally. Yeah. And, and, you know, the last 25 years I've been doing training for all sizes of companies the big companies are always much more inefficient. Okay. Loads of processes, silos, politics. Yeah. You know, getting a decision made is really difficult. It has to be signed off by loads of people. Big companies waste so much time and so much of people's energy and motivation in just stupid ways that they work. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, it, it's not the fault of the people. It's just something to do with the system and the fact that if it's big, you just get more relationships Layers and more and accountability yeah. than I think that would happen. Yeah. So so big companies, I think the problem they have is sort of political bosses who because if you think about it, would you take a risk if there was a chance of the company making more profit, but there's also a chance of you getting into trouble? Mm. And the answer is no, just keep your head down. So big organizations are full of people just playing the game and keeping their head down and you can hide. Nobody will even notice. 
And contrast that there for well, what you see in small, small companies. companies. Uh, yeah, they make decisions, they get on with things, they do things, it's yeah. great. I think the, the problem they sometimes have is that the boss can be unprofessional because they can be either a technical person who's had a brilliant idea, yeah. and it might be software, it might be a physical Absolutely. thing, um, or they might be a salesperson who's yeah. just been selling stuff but doesn't know about management. Um, and if they own the company, they often don't want to spend money on, say, training because it's their own money. Yeah. In a big company, you've got a budget. You must, you've got to spend it. If yeah. you don't spend it, you, you lose don't it. You get it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas a small company, you really feel the pain of yeah. the money. So quite often, they won't invest. So they'll underinvest. Yeah. And so quite often, they have a boss who, you know, maybe um, is a bit macho or aggressive or, yeah. or um, sh- you know, short-term thinker or whatever. And... I'm not. I'm not saying all small companies like that at all. There's some brilliant small yeah. companies, but small companies, it's quite random who the boss is, mm. you know. Whereas when you get to a bigger company, it's more professional. They've thought more about it, and they've got mm-hmm. systems, and and they've stood the test of time as well. You know, yes. they must be doing something right. So I think small company bosses can be, um, yeah, can be it can be bad in other ways. So I think there are different types of bad boss out okay. there. Yeah, and it will depend on the organisation and I suppose industry and all of those kind of things. So yeah. what common complaints do you get typically about bosses when you are undertaking your management training? Because it must yeah. be a question you pose. Well, the one word that jumps out at me immediately is communication. Okay. If, if you, I sometimes do a thing called keep and change where you say, what would you keep about this place and what would you change about this place where we are, where, we're, yeah. where you work? And they always say, the first thing, always, they just say bad communication. They, and, and that's weird because communication's free. It's not that difficult. Um, and I think some bosses are just not good communicators. But I think most bosses can do it really well if they want, but they just don't put the time aside mm. for it. I mean, I think... You probably should spend an hour a day just communicating. I mean, that's a huge it's cost. It's a huge commitment. Isn't yeah. It? An hour a day, walking around, talking to people, finding out what's going on, asking people, you know, what they're working on. Yeah. Is everything okay? And then telling them what's happening in the company. And communication, it could be meetings. It yeah. could be one-to-one. But that's always the cry that I hear. We don't, we don't get told what's going on and they don't listen. And it is the one thing in any organisation that can always be improved, however good you are yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember when they first showed me Maslow's hierarchy, and that's just a theory. Yeah. Um, and a bad training course, they'll just show you the theory and go, right, next. Yeah. But a good training course, they'll say, how does this apply to your real life? How can you make people feel more secure? Or yeah. how can you make people feel more important? Yeah. And you can, and if you really discuss it and get into it, you can make it practical. So I think the key is to somehow get a link between the theory and the practice on the training course. Okay. Because otherwise, people will go away and think, well, Maslow was interesting, but it's too hard to apply it. So I'll just go back to doing what I was doing before. Yeah. So you have to really help people make the link. See the practical reality of the academic. Yeah. In the real world. I mean, I've got a great example because I do a. On my negotiating course, I've got a story about a pine table and where I got loads of money off this pine table from this scary bloke in Bristol who'd stolen it. (laughs) And so I tell this story and it illustrates various things about opening offers and trading and things. And then quite often I get an email a month later from somebody saying, I've just got a real bargain on a bit of pine furniture. (laughs) And I'm like, no, that was not a story about tables at all. It could have been anything. Um, But... People just copy exactly what you tell them. And I, I think people find it really hard to to make the link between the theory and then their jobs. So I think ideally you would make that link or you'd help them make that link. Because otherwise theory on its own is no good at all. No. Um, and, and so I, I think something like an MBA where you get a huge three-year wodge of theory yeah. is really undigestible. I mean, to actually apply that is really yeah. hard. Um, I did an MBA, and I would say a third of it I already knew, because I wasn't that young when I did it. Okay. So the stuff on operations management I already knew. Yeah. A third of it I didn't understand. <laughs> That's a very honest answer, Chris. <laughs> but, but a third of it I have used. Yeah. So the bit about... The marketing bit and the finance bit, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not an accountant, but I actually understand 
you know, cash flow and profit and loss and all those things. And, and that was like, whoa, because for years I've never really understood those things. And so the MBA, it filled in a few random gaps. But the trouble is, I didn't know what the gaps were beforehand, no. or I perhaps wouldn't have admitted there were gaps. But the fact that we got everything, you know, one third of it wasn't wasted. Yeah. And it's perhaps a bit of an expensive way to fill in the gaps, but it, it did do that. So I think you have to have theory and practice. Theory on its own, you just can't digest. And practice on its own is too hard. And, and why reinvent the wheel? I mean, you're never going to reinvent management theory. People have been thinking about it for hundreds of years. Yeah. And to just walk into a job where you're really busy and under stress and invent management you, theory, yeah. how are you ever going to do that? So you'd be mad not to have a little bit of training. I mean, I know I would training, education, yeah. But yeah. put the practicality alongside Our second most popular podcast of 2022 is Bernie Shrewsbury. Bernie is a world-class athlete and high-performance coach who has worked with an illustrious list of sports people, including Olympic gold medalists and racing drivers such as Jensen Button, Mark Webber and Colin McRae. From 16 years with the Royal Marines Special Boat Service to competing in a number of grueling sports events, including Arctic races, Bernie has more than three decades of experience at the highest level of competition and endurance. I was really eager to get him on the show to talk about the mindset required for top level competition and how we can adapt those same traits to our personal and professional lives. As I discovered during the conversation, Bernie is someone who doesn't hold back on his opinions and we had some great and honest discussions on a variety of different topics. And clearly, you absolutely can see the conviction in your eyes that that experience, that military service, shaped you for the future. Yeah, it's 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 kind of it's like this modern day. You know, when I used to speak about it years ago, twenty years ago, to people, people said to me, "Oh, why are you? You know, sometimes you're not the fittest athlete, but you win. What is it?" And, and they say, "Oh, it's because you're mentally." And I'd say that it's what I learned to deal with in the services that you know that gave me that incredible and it's about setting those standards for yourself and I talk about this guy um, that you can go onto YouTube um, it's basically called about making your bed it's quite a tongue-in-cheek thing by um, William McRaven and he's basically the Admiral of the um, SEAL Team 6 the, the American okay. SEALs the Special Forces and he go, and he's in, he's basically doing a conference to some you know these guys finishing in Texas their university and he's just saying to them you know the key thing they ever learned in his life right goes back right to the beginning of making yeah. his bed and you and they're all laughing about it and he and he's just saying well that that principle of making my bed it because the title is it changed changed the world right and going back to making your bed is the first task of the day and if you do those tasks you get those small tasks right at the beginning of the day the more difficult tasks whether it's in business sport or life yeah if you get the other tasks right then then you'll basically see the benefits and see the progress and you'll feel good about yourself personally and as he said if you have a really shit day and go at least you've got a bed that's made <laughs> it's clean sorry it's made yeah. yeah and you talk about mindset a lot there already in this sort of short conversation we've had bernie and you do you really think that makes the difference between those that are good oh, yeah. and those that are excellent. Oh yeah, Def- definitely. The my life has been around. I've had the privilege, I suppose, to be around so many superior athlete, athletic people, and not just in in sport, in other walks of life, in the in the military decisions, and and it's kind of it's just it's the it's the it's the thought process that they have drilled or learned you know yeah. the, the honesty because that's what i said it comes down to the honesty with themselves and thinking no i'm sticking to this this is the yeah. decision i'm going to make you know you've got to make that decision in a race you've got to make that decision in a conflict of war you know or you know you might it might be pure survival i've got to i've got to get this right you know we're in the mountains here i've got to you know you get it I've got to get these decisions right. It's like this guy Nims that you read about. The guy, yeah. he's a friend of mine, and I saw all these stuff before it made the TV. You know, and um, remarkable man. And it's incredible that, like, he had to make that decision. It was very interesting speaking to him before he became super famous. I was, I was just renting a place up the road here, and he, he just said, "Ah," oh, and I said, "My God, when you rescued that Indian woman, you know, 
who you found you just walked past all these bodies and you saw a bit of movement in one of these bodies now you could have just mm -hmm. closed your eyes and carried on because you're in the death zone and you need to, and they always say you just got to look at and he's it you got to look after you yeah. but you saw this movement and you basically basically created a world record for yourself for bringing down that indian doctor yeah and you saved a life yeah. and he says well you know it's just honesty with yourself bernie and that's an incredible yeah, yeah, an incredible thing. I mean, I could go everywhere with all these kind of things with yeah. so many different. But I just thought that's quite a nice one that's to bring one, to you. Yeah, honesty with yourself. Mm. Yeah, because well, 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 can't you kind of look at what I've done? You know, you can't, you can't really, if I can use the word, bullshit your way through a military mission because no. people die. Yeah. You know, you can't bullshit your way through a race because you get found out, you yeah. lose and you can make excuses like I've worked in motorsport you can blame the setup the car you can blame the tyres but at the end of the day you get found out eventually yeah. the engineers sit there and go well actually he's, that's not wrong I've, I've even been a Formula 1 race where the drivers come in and said he's got a problem with the car they've gone around the back and they call rattle the spanners in the bag and they just yeah we'll take it off yeah we've changed it for you off they go they've done nothing incredible wasn't it Mind, yeah. mindset mindset again mindset again but mindset but also what an incredible team to have the confidence to do that you know yeah. so it's it's those kind of things that yeah so mindset i think if people come to me and you ask about well you know the coaching side the performance side whether it's in sport or your business if you actually get the people around you to understand the way you like to think and you share that with them and they agree or disagree, but you find some middle ground on that. You create a phenomenal team of excellence. That's, mm -hmm. that's my vision on it, really. And you can build all the other building blocks around that. How do you go about leading those people so that they all have this passion for the common goal to achieve? Well, I think it's about your integrity, your honesty. I mean, look what's going on in the political world at the moment. Yes. You kind of, it, you know, it's, it's a slippery slope to nowhere, isn't it? And it's kind of, but sometimes with leadership, you can actually, it, it, you can have the support mechanism under you that's got good leadership as well that okay. creates your leadership. So I'm not saying, oh, the people under, underneath you made you famous. It, I don't, I don't say that. It's like I said, it's a, it's a famous Australian guy who I got to meet, David Moffat, and he's. Um, He's been a CEO of Telstra and he's gone on to, I think he, he had two jobs, one in the city in London and he was working for, a, he was a CEO of two companies and one in Hong Kong. And what was interesting about David, a very intense, full, I shared a hotel when we were going out to Shanghai to watch um, Mark Webber race because uh, he's a fan and I was working with Mark at the time. And I shared a room with him because, you know, and it's very interesting that he'd get up at five in the morning and say, hey, Bernie, try these nine exercises. And I'm like getting out of bed, spinning <laughs> on my head. And I mean, bloody hell. And I just thought, wow, you're just so, you know, you can call it intense because I'm pretty yeah. intense. He, but he was so driven and motivated about filling his day. But he started his day like I said, it goes back to making your bed kind of thing. Yeah. He started his day with a task and yeah. he wanted to achieve that task. So it set him up for the rest of the day. And that's how it started, you know, and that's what. So leadership for me, the man at the top, the woman at the top, whatever, you, you've just got to have your principles and the people underneath you is like when things are going wrong, that they look up to you with respect, that they know that you've got that back. I think that's what leadership is, really. You okay. know, that's the that's the key thing. Because if you make someone feel good when times are bad, yeah, that's a clever that's a clever skill. And even though you at the top there are kind of toppling yourself, and it's easy to go around and yeah. point the finger and pass the buck. I think if you all get to group together and you say, "Well, I'm I'm top of the tree here," you know, this is going wrong for us. What we are doing now is how do we how do we make it right? Yeah. And it, instead of pointing the finger, which goes on, what department right you? And if that department has made it wrong, then there should be a support mechanism yeah. there to to bring them through because that's how it works in my world. Definitely, if yeah. someone's gone wrong and someone's yeah. got injured in a military sort of situation, you know, you know, oh, you caught up. It's just you know that's what's happened. Yeah, let's deal with it. Let's not just blame yeah. people. Let's get on and deal with it. So many of us, you know, in business, in life, that when we try challenges, we're not realistic about what it's going to take to yeah. achieve success. Yeah. And also, you may, you may realise this is where the leadership comes in—that the person or the persons that you've, you've given a task that they've realised it's a bit beyond them. But you might be a kind of leader in your world yeah. that you're unapproachable. That they 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 yeah. see it foul before they 
get yeah. them to this point where they, it breaks down and I blame you mm. invertedly at the yeah. top of the tree I blame you at the top of the tree because you didn't you didn't they were too frightened to approach and that's what you've got to look at you've got to look at I consider my background is I'm quite a I'm quite a very kind caring caring person but I don't do grey I'm afraid yeah. I do the black and I do the white and I'll have you all worked out very very quickly because that's one thing skill I have got but what I will do is I guarantee you that if you're struggling on something, I will throw a team of people at you to make sure you lift up and you're floating like the rest of the team. Yeah. That's probably the best thing I can give you because I've seen that happen. And I've seen guys on special forces course that I thought, my God, he's really in a dark place. And sometimes it's a small, a small nugget that can lift them. And they actually have gone on to become incredible. Yeah. I'll give you an interesting story. I was on my parachute course and the SAS and the S we, we used to do the same parachute course together and I bumped into these two Scottish lads, both Scotch guards, just past the SAS and one of them was just having a few beers, giggling, laughing, jokes. I thought this is, and I said to his mate, I said, this guy, I said, he's f incredible. He's just a personality. He's always got the wit, the humour. Yeah. He says, Bernie, you never know where he come from. I said, his parents were alcoholic druggies. He used to turn up at school with no shoes on sometimes. He ran away from home, went into a home, he joined the Scots Guards, and he went on to become a very, very senior officer in the SAS. So you talk about resilience, drive, passion, go get. You know, if you've got a little bit of that and you've got a team behind you, look what you can create. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how I look at things. So... Finally, our number one podcast guest for 2022. His name is Justin Hedges OBE. Justin is the founding partner and executive chairman of Prevail Partners, an intelligence strategy advisory and risk management company. He is also one of the youngest Royal Marines ever and retired from the Royal Marines and Specialist Military Units in 2018. He was awarded his OBE for Outstanding Leadership in Operations and has worked in top roles within the UK's national security architecture. So with the Evolve to Succeed podcast being primarily focused on topics such as leadership, resilience, personal growth and entrepreneurism, Justin seemed the perfect guest and, we, and it's been proven by your response to this episode. We were not wrong in selecting Justin as a guest. Did your leadership style change during the course of your career? Because obviously, you know, leadership training within the forces is renowned. But at some point, do you develop your own style? Because I'd imagine as you come out of that training and you're a newly appointed officer, that's kind of one way of doing it. And there's a little bit of freedom, but you're kind of doing it the way you're taught. Did your leadership style change as a result of your time? It, it certainly evolved. I think it's fair to say that all of the training and education and leadership that's done within the military gives each individual the set of tools. Um, but, but for each and every one of us, you know, you apply those slightly differently. I mean, I think one of my strengths, and I will have had, uh, you know, many weaknesses, um, but one of my strengths is I uh, formed, I think, a quite a successful communication um you know, method which which we sort of a contrived thing, but I used to love sitting down with the guys and girls in a very informal way and just just talking with them. Mm. Uh, you know, whether that was away on operations or or in the unit, I'd I'd spend at least fifty percent of my time really just talking to people. Oh, what are you doing? What are you working on? Most of the time, I was actually wanting to know what they were sort of producing for me. So they were yeah. sort of like, right, you know, what are you working on? How's it going? This, that, and the other. But but in almost all occasions, that would then just evolve as, and you know, me giving a little bit of an explanation about what the priorities were as far as I saw it, what the politics were, what was going on in, in the international stage in the Middle East, or whatever it might be. But that, that I think for me, became my most successful means of mm. of keeping the team that I was responsible for moving in the one direction and and in, and my method of inspiring them to do their jobs 
you always look at the military as a great example of you know some where great leadership does t- take place. So, is there anything you've witnessed during your time within the Royal Marines where you think that was incredible? You know, leadership. Um, I think the first thing I'm gonna say to that is the reverse, okay. and that is um, uh, poor leadership. Um, if that's okay, yeah, of course it is. Um, because there was there's one thing that I saw on several occasions, and sometimes from some quite senior officers, and that this was um, n- um, avoiding taking responsibility when something hasn't gone well. Okay. And in military operations or, you know, and the military in general, not everything goes well all no. of the time. And I think one of the most unseemly or, um, you know, worst aspects of leadership I, I've seen is when, when senior people take a really big step back into the mm. shadows and allow blame to roll down to the junior level when actually the, the best leadership I've seen is when people, um, although um, many factors might have been involved, have really stepped forward, put their hand up and said, actually, the buck stops yeah. with me. I'm the leader. I, I'm the leader. I'm responsible. And, you know, face your charge, you know, yeah. place your place the responsibility at my door and protecting junior people that that to be frank hadn't got out of bed that morning thinking I'm going to make a mistake or yeah. wanting to make a mistake nobody does stuff, do they? but stuff happens yeah. and yes there might have been factors around poor planning or or whatever but at the end of the day I think one of the the most important characteristics of a good leader is the willingness to take responsibility when you are the one that's responsible. Now, seeing kind of the commercial world in its kind of reality, what can do you believe that military approach to managing people, leadership, you know, what does transcend really well into the world of business? You know, our listeners, and what could our listeners that run businesses perhaps learn and implement from the military world? I think there's a common um, service that's offered from ex-military people to the private sector, which I think is is right, and and that is um, just rigorous planning. I mean, what the military does do, because it has hundreds of people employed on a day-to-day basis, do it is good planning. Um, you know, there are tried and tested tools that have been developed over ever since the British Army was formed by Cromwell um, and and before. The legacy of doing that, and I think um, we, we're, we are asked to and provide that sort of support. There are lots of other entities out there run by really good military people that, that what they mm-hmm. do is help... Um, commercial companies of varying sizes to conduct that sort of planning and yeah. bring that in. So I think that's um, I think that's one thing that that, that definitely comes a, you know comes across and is sort of needed in the in the private sector. But the counter to that, do you think if you're you know maybe not in your instance, but maybe in others coming out of the military, probably th- think and overthink and plan. You know, especially in the early days of a business where sometimes you've just got to be entrepreneurial, you've got to see the opportunity and you've got to take the first step. You know, I, um, I think if you it asked me, well, what can the military learn from the commercial side? I would say risk taking. Yeah. Um, because I think what you've put your finger on is where, you know, people that succeed in business... Um, you know, um, use their business instincts mm. better and will are more willing to take calculated risks mm. on less planning than, say, a military person would do. Yeah. Four years post the military career, um, being in the commercial world, if you could go back to the day you left the military... And, and say to yourself, there's one thing you're going to need to learn. 
there's one thing that's going to need to change. What would that be, Justin? Oh, oh, that's so such a good question. Um, I think the the area I'm struggling with more today than I did in my latter years in the in the military is 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 delegation. I mean, I think I um, had got to certainly in my mind, a pretty good place of, of delegating and trusting the people around me, the military. But but there was a huge infrastructure of training and education and layers of checks and balances that meant that actually when you, when you just gave a bit of direction, effective delegation, you would be pretty... It, it, it would be sort of followed through. I think what I've found in the business world, and although the company has evolved to have a little bit of size to it now, every decision feels like you own it from soup to nuts. And and therefore, um, balancing delegation with supervision and trying to not drift into micromanagement is is an area that I'm really struggling with at the moment. Looking back now, the best piece of advice that you've ever received, Justin? I think two pieces of advice um, that I've received that I would sort of pass on. First of all, get back up on your feet, dust yourself down and go again. I think Churchill um, once said that success is not final, failure is is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Mm -hmm. And then the second one, which I think is universal, be good to people and for they will be good to you. Yeah, I love, both are great, but I love that final one. There's an adage to live your life by. So that's it. We wrap up 2022. There are our top 10 episodes. I really hope you've enjoyed the podcast in 2022. We really appreciate all your support. Please do keep listening. We've got some great and fantastic guests lined up for 2023. Thank you.